Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and I wanted to pull together a quick episode for this week because we have a lot of free speech topics in the news. Of course, Elon Musk bought Twitter as of yesterday. We're recording this on Tuesday, so he bought it on Monday. And then there's been the news about Disney, uh, which is the reason I wanted to bring on our guest, Bob Corn Revere, to today's show. Bob should be a familiar guest to those regular listeners. He is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine and recently joined FIRE's Advisory Council. Bob, welcome back onto the show. Thanks, Nico. Happy to be here. So you just published an op-ed in First Amendment News, which for those of you who are not familiar with First Amendment News, you should be. It's a weekly newsletter, editorially independent, although published on FIRE's website. It's produced by um, Ron Collins, who is also a regular guest on the show. You can subscribe via email and get it delivered directly to your inbox each week. But This week's email is just one standalone piece from Bob about the recent move in Florida to deny the Walt Disney Company its special tax district status, which it has held since, what was it, the 60s, Bob? 1967, in preparation for the uh, construction of Disney World. Yeah, and my understanding, historically, is that Walt Disney created Disneyland in Anaheim, California, and was annoyed in part by all the red tape that came along with building Disney World. So when he was scouting out area for for building Disneyland, excuse me, Disneyland in California. So when he was out scouting out um, spaces for Disney World, he sought this special tax, tax district status, which would allow Disney World to sort of govern itself. It has 24 uh, 250,000 acres, and it's run by the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is essentially the Walt Disney Corporation. They have their own fire department, police department. They, they build roads, yeah. Roads, hospitals, all that stuff is handled by them. But fast forward, this has been in place since 1967. Fast forward to this year when Florida passed the Parental Rights and Education Bill, widely dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, which regulates in part what you can teach in, uh, what is it, kindergarten through third grade, and it has a private right to action in order to enforce it. Bob Chapek, who's Disney's new CEO, also happens to be an Indiana University alum, my alma mater, uh, announced the company's opposition to this bill and said in a statement that the law should never have passed and should never have been signed. Our goal as a company is for this law to be repealed by the legislature or struck down in the courts. And we remain committed to supporting the national and state organizations working to achieve that. Well, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, did not like this development and wrote in a fundraising email that if Disney wants to pick a fight, they chose the wrong guy. I will not allow a woke corporation based in California to run our state. So he called a special session, the Florida legislature, voted to repeal this special task district for the Walt Disney Corporation. Although I don't think it named him. It just said anyone who had this special tax district before 
the Florida state constitution was enacted, and I forget what year that was, um, would need to get their special tax status renewed. Um, and the law is set to go in effect on June, 2023. So there is, a chance that it will get renewed. But as of right now, Disney is losing its special tax district status and the responsibility, including for the debt that Disney has accrued, um, now falls to the two counties over which those 250,000 acres were, are apportioned. So in comes Bob Cornrevere <laughs> with his op-ed for First Amendment News, arguing that actually what Florida is doing is unconstitutional because the Walt Disney Corporation has a First Amendment right to speak up about politics. Bob, I thought corporations weren't supposed to have free speech rights. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's a larger conversation for a different case. But yes, uh, there are those who are skeptical of having the First Amendment extend to corporate speech as well. Uh, as we know, uh, the Supreme Court has settled that question. Corporations do have First Amendment rights. And, you know, that comes up in a lot of different contexts. The issue here, though, I think first it's important to identify what this is not about. You know, it's not about the merits or demerits of the Parental Rights and Education Act. Uh, it's not about whether or not the Reedy Creek Improvement District is a good idea, should have been created in the first place, or should continue. Those are really separate issues. The question here is whether or not government can withdraw a benefit um, in retaliation for the speech of an individual or of a corporation. And I think the case law that I explore in the op-ed piece pretty firmly says, no, it can't. Now, I, uh, I, mean, I know a little bit about the First Amendment, right? Yeah, I've been doing this podcast for six years, uh, although I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I remember reading somewhere during my uh, education in civics about bills of attainder. Is that something that would apply here or is that just for criminal prosecutions? Uh, no, it's not just for criminal prosecution. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's a precedent from about 30, 35 years ago where Congress adopted a rider to a, an appropriations bill that focused on Rupert Murdoch as he was forming the Fox Network. Uh, and the court suggested that this operated as a bill of attainder because it focused on Murdoch with the precision of a laser beam. Even though his name wasn't in the legislation, it permeated the legislative debates. You could make that argument, uh, although I haven't explored that uh, separately in, in, in this piece. Um, and the bill of attainder is a constitutional provision which prohibits laws passed targeting specific individuals yes. or groups, or in this case, corporations. That's right. So what precedents do you rely upon to suggest that, because legislatures pass laws all the time, you know, it's the prerogative of legislatures in a certain sense to um, provide for, provide an environment for economic improvement. Um, so in a certain sense, you know, they can create this law, but what you're saying is they can't take it away if it's for a retaliatory reason, but they can't right. take it away if the facts suggest that it's just because they think the economics of it are better um, or the incentives for 
counties and tax, you know, any anything unrelated to a constitutionally enumerated right. Well, that's right. I mean, legislative legislative powers are expansive. They can uh, legislatures can adopt regulations of business within constitutional limits. They can uh, enter or uh, remove the state from uh, certain relations with with uh, businesses. But what they can't do is act with a motive designed to suppress constitutionally protected rights. And so even if the legislature could have eliminated this special district for any number of reasons related to the policy benefits or demerits of the, of the district, if it is done specifically to punish a, co a corporation for its speech activities, then uh, the president suggests that no, this is not something that's permissible. And it's because the, the First Amendment is a limitation on what government can do. Uh, it, and it can't use its powers in a way designed to suppress speech. And so this isn't a controversial, I'm assuming, uh, interpretation of the First Amendment. In your piece, you cite a couple of cases in the past, and I think two which happened in the same year, where the Supreme Court ruled that this sort of retaliation is unconstitutional. Well, yeah, there are two lines of, of uh, authorities, both from the Supreme Court and lower courts. One involves just the question of, of retaliation. Uh, and it's, it's well established that uh, uh, government cannot restrict rights based on retaliatory motives. But the other line of authority, and again, I don't see it as controversial, is the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions. And that is the government can't condition its actions on someone's relinquishing their rights. Uh, the classic example, as you say, decades ago in the, in the 50s, actually, uh, involved um, <clears throat> a tax benefit uh, that in, in California that required veterans to qualify for the, the benefit to swear to a loyalty oath. Uh, and uh, the court basically said, no, if, if you're conditioning this benefit, the government doesn't have to provide. You know, there's no right to the benefit per se. But if you condition that benefit on the relinquishment of a right that you do have, in this case, the right to engage in uh, political speech or not to have to swear to uh, beliefs you don't have, or those that you do, um, then that violates the Constitution. And then that principle of unconstitutional conditions has been reaffirmed in, in a variety of different contexts. There's also a chilling effect concern here, right? What's unseen are all the other corporations that operate in Florida who have interests at play in any sort of given debate in the Florida legislature who might not speak up now as a result of this very targeted uh, attack on the Walt well, Disney sure, Company sure. for its political um, positions. Well, yeah, and, and the chilling effect comes not so much from this particular action, although it does, you know, it's targeted at uh, one corporation. Uh, but the idea is if this ty type of government retaliation were sanctioned by the courts, if this were tested and approved, then any time a state, local, or federal government wanted to put pressure on a corporation and say, don't take this position, uh, they would have a hammer to use that would be able to, and they, they would be able to claim has nothing to do with free speech rights. We're just taking away this benefit. Do you think the Walt Disney Corporation will challenge this? Or do you think they'll try and work within the legislature to get their special tax status renewed? I, I have no idea. So we're, we have three possible 
ways in this, which this is unconstitutional, right? On First Amendment grounds, uh, which is what your piece address. <laughs> my my theory that this is a bill of attainder. Um, not, again, not a lawyer, just throwing that out there. No, uh, there's precedent for it. And then uh, the idea that it's an unconstitutional condition as well. Now, you write in your piece that this isn't the first time that Florida has, and I think you put, Pat, you, you, you wrote, Indu- was induced to pass comically unconstitutional legislation in service of a political agenda. You speak also about Senate Bill 7072, uh, which required large social media platforms to operate as common car- carriers subject to a host of poorly drafted mandates. Uh, and you write that as Governor DeSantis said in his signing statement, day in, day out, our freedom of speech as conservatives is under attack by big tech oligarchs of Silicon Valley. But in Florida, we said this egregious example of bias silencing will not be tolerated. But a federal court uh, preliminarily enjoined the law, which it described as an effort to rein in social media providers deemed too large and too liberal. Uh, You say it's comically unconstitutional. How so? Well, it's comically unconstitutional for a variety of reasons. One is the district court made pretty short work of it in its opinion uh, for granting the preliminary injunction, saying that wanting to balance private speech politically is not even a legitimate government objective. And so it it drew the line pretty firmly. But then it said that uh, the legislation is both uh, content and viewpoint based and that it doesn't satisfy strict scrutiny under the law. So uh, again, where the um, political motivations were that plain and that naked and in the face of the law, then um, uh, as I said, the court uh, made pretty short work of it, as did a court involving a similar Texas law um, that uh, tried to regulate uh, social media platforms as common carriers. Uh, the, um, the Florida law is going, it was a, the decision on the Florida law was appealed. It's argued this week, I believe, in the 11th Circuit. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. What do you make, though, of this argument that social media companies are common carriers? You hear about this often. You know, it's the, the utility of them are such that they're comparable to uh, the gas company, the electric company, the the phone company. Would a law such as that be constitutional were it so nakedly were it not so nakedly political, for example? No, I, I don't think it would be. And, and for the same reason as we've discussed with uh, the measure in, uh, affecting Disney, and that is that corporations have rights and social media platforms exercise those rights when they make moderation decisions, something that the courts that have confronted this issue have recognized. And it's not as if the legislature has the authority to snap its fingers and say, poof, you're a common carrier. You don't get to exercise your editorial or moderation rights. We're taking that away from you. Uh, and so uh, you can try and argue that it's a common carrier, like railroads were created as, as and carriages before that as common carriers. Uh, and then later on, uh, uh, phone companies, but phone companies uh, didn't uh, provide editorial functions uh, like social media platforms do. Um, social media platforms also come in all shapes and sizes. They, they um, apply um, different kinds of moderation practices depending on what kind of community they were set up to create. Um, The comparison really breaks down pretty quickly. And I think mainly what's going on is that those with an interest in regulating, both on the left and on the right, 
um, have simply latched onto what they see as a useful um, doctrinal tool to allow them to do what they want. But I don't think they'll be able to. Well, the argument, you know, and it's the argument that DeSantis was making is that these ubiquitous social media companies and talking about their ubiquity in a certain sense might be true, but it also presumes their existence forever. But all you need to really do is look at Facebook and its recent decline, uh, especially among younger generations, to know that uh, some things are forever, uh, death and taxes maybe, but uh, I'm not so sure social media companies are uh, in the same way Standard Oil was and maybe... Once their parents and grandparents adopted Facebook, it wasn't quite as cool. So <laughs> no, it wasn't quite as cool. Yeah, uh, you know, so that's going to stay. But um, they, they, they're concerned. Uh, conservatives, in particular, are concerned about the moderation decisions made on some of these platforms. And so was Elon Musk, right? Uh, if you listen to his statements surrounding the his interest in Twitter, for example, it sounds like he was motivated to buy it based on concerns around moderation and a larger concern for uh, freedom of speech, calling Twitter, for example, in a recent TED talk, uh, the new town square, the new public square. Uh, If you're on Twitter, you'd think that Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter was the end of the world. Uh, uh, And there's also some people are poking fun at the people who think it's the end of the world. Um, But I wanted to get your sense as someone who is in this space uh, of the purchase and how you think it will impact the debate and also potentially the, you know, and I realize this is all speculation at this point, um, how it'll affect Twitter and perhaps other social media companies beyond it. Yeah, it is, I think, complete speculation. And there was a long piece in this morning's newsletter from the Columbia Journalism Review that explores the various reactions to it. And they're largely based on trying to uh, decipher uh, what Musk has meant in his various tweets on the issue and his, his uh, TED appearance. Um, but I don't think anybody really knows at this point. I think it underscores the point that you made at the top that it has been quite a month for uh, news in this area. And both of these issues, the issue of, of Florida retaliating against Disney and uh, the Musk purchase of, um, of Twitter, occurring only in record speed for these kinds of major issues. Um, Musk first indicated that he was interested in in buying uh, Twitter or a large portion of Twitter at the beginning of of April, April 4th, I think. Within days, he was offered a board position. It looked like he was going to be on the board, and then he said he wasn't going to be on the board. Then he announced he was going to do a hostile takeover. The board said they're going to have a poison pill to prevent that, and then we see they make a deal, which at a 40% premium on existing share prices, I guess it just proves that money talks, which is, you know, not quite the same thing as saying that money is speech, but it does say that uh, uh, the uh, existing board of Twitter knew a good offer when they saw one. Now, what that means, who knows? I don't think that uh, uh, anyone is going to operate a platform of that magnitude without having moderation practices. Um, That's what pretty much all the major platforms have discovered over years of of trying to manage them. I mean, think about it. Uh, Twitter gets something like 325,000 tweets a minute, uh, which is about 31 million tweets per hour. Uh, There has to be some way uh, if you're going to have any any terms of service, and there's no suggestion that they're not, um, without having uh, moderation. The question is how you do it. 
no one's been able to crack that nut. Um, right. Um, my boss, Greg Lukianoff, when it, the news broke that Elon Musk became a majority shareholder in Twitter, I think with 9%, uh, this was earlier this month, uh, wrote an open letter to Elon Musk, not necessarily telling him or social media companies how they should approach their moderation decisions, but rather saying there's a lot of wisdom behind the First Amendment, particularly with regards to its um, viewpoint neutrality and how it categorizes speech uh, and taking some of the that wisdom, for example, what qualifies as incitement, what qualifies as a true threat. You know, there's a lot of a lot of contours have been built around those over the past hundred years in First Amendment law and thinking those through when thinking through uh, moderation and moderation decisions. And then, of course, you know, the limits on viewpoint based discrimination, particularly with free speech. But I don't know that even the most ardent free speech advocate would say that these platforms need to have crush videos, you know, which are protected by the First Amendment or uh, pornography um, uh, on their their platforms. But I also don't think that those are the sorts of categories of speech, if you're looking at categories of speech identified by the First Amendment, um, that have most people up in arms. It seems to be mostly based on political uh, discrimination or alleged political discrimination. Right. And uh, a lack of transparency, for example, two things that um, Elon Musk says that he wants to change about Twitter. He also wants to get rid of bots um, and wants to verify all users, which as the EFF, Electronic Freedom Foundation, pointed out yesterday, does pose a problem for those advocates of anonymous speech, uh, of which I am one. Now, maybe there's a way to verify them and let them remain anonymous on the platform, but you're not remaining anonymous to Twitter at that point, um, which, you know, is one of the concerns of EFF. But speaking to Elon Musk's larger motivation, I re- I listen on my way into the office every morning to uh, Bloomberg Radio, which I find to be one of the uh, uh, more interesting programs on in the morning. And they had a bunch of financial analysts kind of analyzing this deal. And they said, this is a gift to Twitter. They said, Twitter is not worth 5420, um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking to Elon Musk's pro- proclivity to uh, make offers that end in 420. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but they said this is not it, the, just the financials aren't there. Um, and I think if you read all the reporting on this acquisition, uh, the board voting unanimously to accept the offer seemed to realize that. So the question then becomes, what is Elon's real? Like, does he actually think this company's profitable when nobody else thinks it can be? Or is he actually motivated by some like deeper concern or deeper interest in the values at stake? And if you read the press release put out by Twitter, The only quote that Musk provides is this, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. I also want to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithm open source to increase trust, defeating the spam bots, as I just mentioned, and authenticating all humans. Twitter has tremendous potential. I look forward to working with the company and the community. And then he he tweeted out that part of the... uh... Um, press release as his own tweets. So. <laughs> and there's a rocket and stars and a bunch exactly. of emojis. So, exactly. you know, maybe he does have a legitimate concern for it. Um, well, I, I think the reactions have been fascinating to uh, this development. Um, you know, one of the reactions is now this is going to make uh, Twitter completely commercially unviable because it's going to be flooded with all kinds of horrible speech and 
uh, you know, spam and advertising. I don't think there's anything in what Musk has said to suggest that that's the plan. But if that is the, the concern, then I, it's sort of a self, self-fulfilling prophecy because, you know, if those policy choices, if they were to be made, made Twitter uh, uh, not commercially attractive, uh, it would lose, you know, advertisers, which, you know, may not bother uh, Musk, uh, but it would become less important and less influential because fewer people would use it. Uh, the other reaction that I find really fascinating is that so many of the commentators have suggested that Musk's interest in free speech is the threat that, uh, oh, my God, we might have a platform that doesn't engage in uh, selective editorial uh, review. Now, you know, platforms have every right to do that. Um, but I just find the commentaries describing free speech as the threat as being particularly odd. Yeah. I think a lot of it is a concern stemming from whether he would allow you know, former President Trump back on the platform, right? A concern stemming from that. But President Trump says he doesn't want to come back on. Said he wouldn't uh, come back even if invited. So who knows uh, where the truth lies on that. But, uh, you know, if that's the concern, if those concerned about Twitter as a free speech platform are that it wouldn't ban, in their view, the right people, uh, then I think we have a larger concern with social media platforms. Yeah. Uh, Greg and I are working on a piece right now because a lot of the chatter is about hate speech and allowing hate speech on the platform. And the crux of the piece is that we've had hate speech reg regulation in America for the past 40 years on college campuses. Uh, and it hasn't turned out great. You know, the, you know, one of the first harassment codes, which is based on the concerns surrounding hate speech, was at University of Michigan, Doe v. Michigan, an effort to protect um, minority students, particularly black students, from uh, hate speech and harassment, uh, ended up being used in its first two cases on uh, two black students. Um, yeah. Right. And that's yeah. one of the problems. It's that, always the way. It's always the way. And that's what you see on social media companies, too. And, and one of the things that social media companies have a particularly hard time identifying is satire. So you see yes. satirical posts that are making the exact opposite point of or expressing the exact opposite view of what the hate speech regulations are meant to address right. being taken down, their accounts suspended. Um, and then what you also have going on now is the companies flagging misinformation or potentially dangerous content. Misinformation in May of 2020 was the lab lake theory related to COVID, which became a leading theory of the United States government a short year later, right? right. Uh, and then right. you have people like Charles C.W. Cook, who's a writer for National Review, I think a very articulate defender of free speech, who has a personal website in which he talks about mostly roller coasters, but also you know gun rights. You, you try and click on that website from Twitter, it flags it as being a potentially dangerous right. uh, website right. that would be violative of Twitter's terms of service. So you see all these weird applications of these terms of service. And then, you know, you can't be surprised well, when people like DeSantis for unconstitutional, comically unconstitutional reasons come after it. And you have people like Elon Musk who proclaims an interest in free speech, then <laughs> richest man in the world seeking to just buy the public square. 
Well, yeah, I mean, again, the, the word public square needs to be done with air quotes because it is one of many commercial platforms on which people have a global um, platform where they can express their views. Um, but as you say, they tend to come and go in popularity and uh, often with internet speed. Um, and there's a real difference between a platform's efforts to control its community and have terms of service that they enforce for things like hateful speech or, or other kinds of uh, unwelcome speech uh, and having governments try and do it. And when governments attempt to enforce these laws, uh, they tend to, if they don't become authoritarian vehicles for suppression, they, they uh, tend to simply fail in their objectives. I mean, consider France, for example, uh, has some of the strongest hate speech laws in Europe where such laws can be enforced, uh, yet uh, far-right candidates like Marine Le Pen, uh, while not winning the French election, fortunately, um, have gained popularity over the last few years. So, you know, whatever you'll say about hate speech laws, they don't perform the objective that those who support them are looking for, and that is to change how people think, change their, their how they express themselves. So we talk about Twitter having the, the ability, the First Amendment right, to make editorial decisions on its own platform. It's a private company. Uh, you see Senate Democrats, uh, for example, right now, taking a particular interest in Musk's uh, attempt to purchase Twitter. Um, a lot of Democratic politicians uh, are taking an interest, uh, perhaps motivated by concern that the platform would allow Donald Trump back on, but for whatever reason. And then we look at what's happening in Florida, right? A, a company um, suffering what you argue is First Amendment retaliation uh, for exercising its First Amendment rights. I do want to go back to the first question I asked, because it's an important one for me, and it's one that we often have to overcome in making free speech arguments um, about the rights of corporations to speak. Um, you see arguments that they shouldn't have that right. Um, but if they don't have that right, then Twitter doesn't have the right to make its editorial decisions in a certain sense. You, um, you know, uh, Disney doesn't have the right to chime in about the Parental Rights and Education Act, uh, you know, on the oh, flip side. Oh, wait, it, it has the uh, the right, or better to say, the ability to do that. They just might get retaliation from the yes. legislature if the First Amendment didn't exist. Yes. So, uh, and this all comes back, of course, to the, the big uh, bugaboo that people hate, which is Citizens United, often forgetting the facts of that case, which is that a corporation, a nonprofit corporation, Citizens United, sought to make a documentary about Hillary Clinton um, and release it within 90 days of an election. Um, right. And did they have a First Amendment right uh, to do so? Um, and the court held that they did. So why should corporate, and this is a normative question more than anything, um, I guess, uh, it seems like the law is fairly clear that corporations have these rights. Why should they have these rights? And did the founders kind of anticipate uh, corporations having these rights? I keep it, you know, I think of corporations in a certain sense as an amalgamation of people um, working toward a common goal with this, with the protection of law. Um, but maybe that's wrong. Well, no, I think, uh, of course, the framers had that in mind. That's why they mentioned the press in the First Amendment. Uh, properly understood as a corporate entity. Um, and so it enshrined those rights in, 
in the Bill of Rights. Uh, you know, when people raise this question about whether or not corporations should have rights, I guess they just assume that those rights will exist for newspaper corporations like the New York Times Company, the Washington Post, or CNN, or Fox News. Um, and yet, uh, I don't know how you justify that belief and then exclude other corporations like uh, the ACLU, like the NAACP, uh, other nonprofit organizations, or like labor unions. Those are all corporate entities that, uh, if they didn't have First Amendment rights, wouldn't be able to uh, perform their function in society. So I think, of course, corporations are protected by the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has made that clear many times over the years. Citizens United, uh, they did so in the context of election law regulation. But um, I think generally, if you say corporations don't have rights, then uh, you're also saying that corporations like Disney can't come out against the Parental Rights and Education Bill, which strikes me as an untenable position. What was the argument made? Because I, I believe this comparison to newspapers was made during the Citizens United case uh, as well. But did, can the argument be that, well, the first you know, corporations don't have these First Amendment rights, but newspapers do because of the free press clause of the First Amendment? Well, yes, you could try and make that argument. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know how you draw that line. Uh, what about corporations that have newsletters? Uh, you know, what what about uh, these other entities like like, uh, like labor unions, right? Corporations, they're still corporations, right? Um, so, uh, Bob, I think we're going to leave it there. Oh, one thing I just did see in the coverage um, was news to me that Anthony Romero, who's the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, said that Elon Musk is an ACLU card-carrying member and one of their most significant supporters. But Romero goes on to say there's a lot of danger in having so much power in the hands of any one individual. We'll and see. yet at the, same, at the same time, I heard people worrying about Twitter's decision to ban Donald Trump for life, saying that a corporation shouldn't be able to have that kind of... Uh, that kind of authority or ability. And yet at the same time, now the same people or some of the same types of people are, are wringing their hands over the idea that Twitter might allow someone like Trump to come back on the platform. I, you know, it's hard to tell what the actual concern is. Is it a concern that this will be a green light for Donald Trump? Well, it's, it's not as if his lack of presence on Twitter has not made him, you know, a potential candidate uh, for 2024. Uh, He's out there anyway. Yeah. As I like to say, we live in the uh, age of the politics of expediency. It seems as though and the motivating of the moment. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be. And this has maybe always been the case. Um, that the motivating factor behind how we approach any of these decisions is, is it good for my side or is yeah. it bad for my side? And, and, and by the way, I, for one, think it's been wonderful to have a Twitter vacation from Trump. I, I, I you know, welcome picking up the newspaper in the morning and not seeing the lead story always be whatever outrageous thing he posted. Uh, but that being said, uh, I don't think it's going to be the end of the world one way or the other if the ownership of Twitter changes and it allows a wider range of people, including the likes of Donald Trump, to uh, have their Twitter accounts. Well, if if Elon did adopt Greg Lukianoff's uh suggestions to follow First Amendment wisdom, he would need to answer, especially around categories of unprotected speech, he would need to answer, was Trump's uh, 
speech on January 6th uh, incitement. And I know there are a lot of divided First Amendment people. There, there are even among First Amendment experts about whether or not it crossed the line. And the information that continues to come out from the January 6th committee adds more color to that debate. You know, what exactly was going on? I think we do need to get to the bottom of it. Um, but one of the challenges is in any of the determining if anything is a unprotected speech. And again, Twitter does not need to do this as a private company, but often these are factual determinations that rely heavily on um, on the facts, for example, um, yes, which do. Twitter doesn't have subpoena power. They don't have the rights to discovery in a certain sense. Like maybe you could create a system where you ask people to voluntarily um, supply information uh, if they're subject to a ban. I don't know, but it's not the government. Right. But, but Facebook has its admirable effort to have its sort of review committee or its, what they yeah. call its Supreme Court. Uh, I think the magnitude of the task is overwhelming, but I think it is a good faith effort to try and bring some sort of rationality to how those decisions are made. Well, the irony of it all right now is that you cannot get any organic. I run a communications department. We spend a lot of marketing dollars on social media platforms and elsewhere. Um, we use a lot of these platforms to get organic reach. Um, we don't even factor in our Facebook following in determining the amount of organic followers that we have or what our goals are, because it's impossible to reach people organically on Facebook right now uh, in a way that the other platforms aren't. I think a lot of that was throttled back after the backlash they got from the 2016 election and the alleged meddling um, on their platform. Um, but so, you know, a lot of that's a dead letter on the Facebook side with regard to transparency and getting your accounts banned. Um, people aren't reaching people <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I, yes, I do think it is admirable that they're trying to introduce transparency into the process while allowing for uh, appeals, uh, especially of the hard cases. Yes. Uh, so, Bob, we'll leave it there. Uh, I'd encourage folks who are listening to this, if they do not already subscribe to First Amendment news to do so on FIRE's website. I'll have a link in the show notes. Um, just got to put in your email. It gets delivered to your email inbox every Wednesday. Bob's piece is uh, punishing Disney for opposing Florida's don't say gay law poses serious First Amendment problems. It's a quick read. It cites some of the cases that we were alluding to or suggesting of uh, during this this podcast. And uh as a reminder, Bob is a partner at Davis Wright Terrain and a new member of FIRE's Advisory Council. Bob, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you, Nico. Always good to talk to you. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We also take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. Again, that is so to speak at the fire.org. Until next time, I thank you all again for listening.